in February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material than I could ever deal with in just four lectures. Therefore, I've expanded those four lectures into a total of 14 messages, of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website, which is triumphantpublications.com, and read for free a written version based on all of these messages. These messages are being compiled also into a book, a hard version book that is due for release in the middle of June 2013. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available. If you don't want a hard copy, you can read the transcript of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Simple Compromise Transcript. Also on my publishing website, I've listed links to all the audio messages found on sermonaudio.com under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Simple Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. In this particular message, I will be dealing with a former professor of Old Testament by the name of Peter Enns. The message is titled, Peter Enns, Where Theistic Evolution Can Lead. Peter Enns is the last person that I will analyze simply because he probably best typifies what can happen to an individual once one begins the downward spiral on adopting an evolutionary view of Scripture. This does not mean that all theistic evolutionists will end up theologically where Enns has, but it does show how one can easily end up with views purported by Enns. I would say that Enns' views are the logical outcome of an evolutionary perspective and the result when one views science as the best interpreter of Scripture. Peter Enns was professor of Old Testament for 14 years at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, up to his dismissal in 2008. Controversy arose over his 2005 book titled Inspiration and Incarnation. And that book is not as abrasive in certain ways as the book written by Enns last year, 2012, titled The Evolution of Adam, What the Bible Does and Does Not Say About Human Origins. Westminster Seminary President Lilbeck told students about the board's decision to dismiss Peter Enns. He said, quote, We have students who have read it and say it has liberated them. We have other students that say it's crushing their faith and removing them from their hope. We have churches that are considering it, and two presbyteries have said they will not send students to study under Professor Enns here. End of quote. This was Lilbeck's uh, reference to Peter Enns' book, Inspiration and Incarnation, that led to his dismissal. It is most grievous to see such division in the visible church. Some hail Enns' ideas as liberating, and others as crushing. 
There is something very, very wrong with this picture. With Ainsley's publication of his book, The Evolution of Adam, some have argued that this book definitely shows that Westminster's decision of dismissal was fully justified. I would concur with that sentiment for sure. What's so bad about Ins's book, that is, his book, The Evolution of Adam, is that it is the consistent and logical outcome, outcome of a theistic evolutionary perspective. Now, this does not mean that everyone who adopts a theistic evolutionist interpretation of Genesis ends up where ends has. I will not give as many quotes as I did with Jack Collins, even though ends is far more explicit and open in his views. As one will see, ends is very straightforward. For example, he says, quote, A literal reading of the Genesis creation stories does not fit with what we know of the past. The scientific data does not allow it. And modern biblical scholarship places Genesis in its ancient Near East cultural context, end of quote. If the following comment by Enns is any indication of his views of biblical inspiration, then one can understand why he was dismissed from Westminster Seminary. In part two of his book, titled Understanding Paul's Adam, we learn what he thinks. Peter Enns states, quote, The conversation between Christianity and evolution would be far less stressful for some if it were not for the prominent role that Adam plays in two of Paul's letters, specifically Romans 5, 12-21, and 1 Corinthians 15, 20-58. In these passages, Paul seems to regard Adam as the first human being and ancestor of everyone who ever lived. This is a particular vital point in Romans, where Paul regards Adam's disobedience as the cause of universal sin and death from which humanity is redeemed through the obedience of Christ. Ends continues, quote, It is understandable why, for a good number of Christians, the matter of a historical Adam is absolutely settled, and the scientific and archaeological data, however convincing and significant they might be otherwise, are either dismissed or reframed to be compatible with Paul's understanding of human origins. End of quote. So, it is evident for ends, science and archaeology are more convincing than us poor, misguided people who think Paul got it right because the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle. I suppose the Holy Spirit needs to check in with the latest scientific data to be sure of things before the living God inspired men who were mistaken. I'm being facetious, of course. While saying that Paul's view of Adam and Christ is central to Christian theology, Inns is critical of those who insist that science and archaeology must fall in line for all those who look to Scripture as the final authority on theological matters. Wow! Shame on us for wanting science and archaeology to fall in line with Scripture. And shame on us who look to the scripture as the final authority. I'm being facetious again. I do not want to go into specifics on the new perspective of Paul theology, but Enns has adopted this view. Enns states, 
Paul is not doing straight exegesis of the Adam story. Rather, he subordinates that story to the present higher reality of the risen Son of God, expressing himself with the hermeneutical conventions of the time. One of the dominant views of the new perspective on Paul is that Paul's theology is not so much about explaining justification by faith alone, like Martin Luther understood it, but Paul's case is simply to show that Jews and Gentiles together make up the people of God. One of the dominant views of the new perspective on Paul theology is that Paul's theology is not so much about explaining justification by faith alone, like Martin Luther understood it, but Paul's case is simply to show that Jews and Gentiles together make up the people of God. While true in one sense about Jews and Gentiles being in the church, the new perspective on Paul approach has a twist to it. Inns goes on to say this about Paul's view of Romans 5. Quote, Adam read as the first human supports Paul's argument about the universal plight and remedy of humanity, but it is not a necessary component for that argument. In other words, attributing the cause of universal sin and death to a historical Adam is not necessary for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be a fully historical solution to that problem. Without question, evolution requires us to revisit how the Bible thinks of origins. End of quote. One could ask Peter ends, then why did God the Father send God the Son to be incarnated into the world? I suppose the Apostle Matthew got it wrong also when in Matthew 121, Matthew records the angel instructing Joseph, call the virgin conceived son as Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From Peter N's perspective, the Apostle Paul got it wrong in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21-22, which says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So ends the reading of God's precious word. In questioning the consequences of Adam's sin in Genesis 2 and 3, Enns says, quote, If Adam's disobedience lies at the root of universal sin and death, why does the Old Testament never once refer to Adam in this way? Adam in Chronicles seems to be a positive figure, the first of many, not the cause of sin and death, although I admit that it is more an argument from silence in Chronicles, end of quote. If one recalls from the chapter on Ron Chun, this is his view about Adam not being the source of sin and death. What does Peter Inns believe about Cain? He says, quote, The picture drawn for us is that Cain is fully capable of making a different choice. Not that his sin is due to an inescapable sinful inheritance. Adam's disobedience is not presented as having any causal link to Cain's. End of quote. What about Noah? Ann says that Noah, being called a righteous man, demonstrates that at least in Noah there was no original sin linked back to Adam. Peter Ends uh, says, quote, if Adam were the cause of universal sinfulness, the description of Noah is puzzling. 
If Adam's disobedience is the ultimate cause of this near universal wickedness, one can only wonder at this crucial junction in the story that is not spelled out or at least hinted at. If Adam's causal role was such a central teaching of the Old Testament, we wonder why the Old Testament writers do not return to this point again and again. Rather than attribute to Adam a causal role, however, the recurring focus in the Old Testament is on Israel's choice whether or not to obey God's law, the very choice given to both Adam and Cain. End of quote. It is clear that Peter Inns does not agree with the notion of original sin. In fact, much of Inns' views here are outright the same as the heretic Pelagius with whom Augustine did battle with in the 5th century. R.C. Sproul has an excellent book titled Willing to Believe the Controversy over Free Will. In this book, Sproul identifies 18 premises of Pelagius's views. Sadly, Enz's views constitute several of these premises. Enz, sensitive that some think he is Pelagian, says, I am not trying to advocate some form of Pelagianism. I read the Adam story not as a universal story to explain human sinfulness at all, but as a proto-Israel story, In the quote. Regardless of what he says, Enz is a Pelagian. Enz's view views the story of Adam and Eve as simply a wisdom story that depicts Israel's exile. Israel's failure to follow Proverbs' path of wisdom is what the Adam story is all about, he says. We get a glimpse at why certain men at Westminster Seminary were upset with Peter Enns. Enns discusses the Apostle Paul's views compared with ancient cosmology. Enns states, quote, My aim is simply to observe that Paul and other biblical writers shared assumptions about physical reality with his fellow ancient Hellenistic Jews. Many Christian readers will conclude correctly that a doctrine of inspiration does not require guarding the biblical authors from saying things that reflect a faulty ancient cosmology. But when we allow the Bible to lead us to it in our thinking on inspiration, we are compelled to leave room for the ancient writers to reflect and even incorporate their ancient mistaken cosmologies into their scriptural reflections. End of quote. Just when one thinks that it cannot get any worse, ends says, quote, But does this mean that Paul's assumption about this one aspect of physical reality, human origins, necessarily displays a unique level of scientific accuracy? Just as with any of other of his assumptions and views of physical reality, the inspired status of Paul's writings does not mean that his view on human origins determines what is allowable for contemporary Christians to conclude. I do not grant, however, that the gospel is actually at stake in the question of whether what Paul assumed about Adam as the progenitor of humanity is scientifically true. End of quote. Oh well, theistic evolutionist Peter Enns has Paul in error. Even inspired Paul must bow to the sacred altar of Darwinism. Enns continues his assault on 
inspired Paul. He says, when viewed in the context of the larger Jewish world of which Paul was a part, his interpretation is one among several, with nothing to commend it as being necessarily more faithful to the original, end of quote. Peter Inns gives us his understanding of the federal headship of Adam as a theistic evolutionist. He says, quote, We do not reflect Paul's thinking when we say, for example, that Adam need not be the first created human, but can be understood as a representative head of humanity. Such a head could have been a hominid chosen by God somewhere in the evolutionary process whose actions were taken by God as representative of all other hominids living at the time and would ever come to exist. In other words, the act of this Adam has affected the entire human race not because of all humans are necessarily descended from him, but because God chose to hold all humans as accountable for this one act. End of quote. Ends may not see that there is a problem with this next statement, but I hope my listener does when he says, quote, Admitting the historical and scientific problems with Paul's Adam does not mean in the least that the gospel message is therefore undermined. A literal Adam may not be the first man and cause of sin and death as Paul understood it. But what remains of Paul's theology are three core elements of the gospel. Even without a first man, death and sin are still the universal realities that mark the human condition, end of quote. In another swipe at the doctrine of original sin, in states, quote, The notion of original sin where Adam's disobedience is the cause of a universal state of sin does not find clear, if any, biblical support. The fact that Paul draws an analogy between Adam and Christ, however, does not mean that we are required to consider them as characters of equal historical understanding, end of quote. Imagine, just because Paul believes something, you're not required to believe it. And Paul got it wrong about Adam being the first man, so you do not need to believe him either. Peter Inns concludes his book by saying the following. One cannot read Genesis literally, meaning as a literally accurate description of physical historical reality. In view of the state of scientific knowledge today and our knowledge of ancient Near Eastern stories of origins, end of quote. In his conclusion, we who hold to a traditional understanding of creation are the dangerous ones, according to Enns. Enns states, Literalism is not just an outdated curiosity or an object of jesting. It can be dangerous. A responsible view of the biblical stories must account for the scientific and archaeological facts, not dismiss them, ignore them, or, as in some cases, manipulate them, end of quote. So, when having our devotions, are we to be sure that we have beside us pagan origin stories and Darwin's origin of species and his book, Descent of Man, to be sure we understand the Bible correctly? Is that what we got to do? I think it's appropriate to conclude a review of Inns' book by demonstrating how Inns has logically arrived to his thesis number nine. 
His thesis number nine states, A true rapprochement between evolution and Christianity requires a synthesis, not simply adding evolution to existing theological formulations. Evolution is a serious challenge to how Christians have traditionally understood at least three central issues of the faith, the origin of humanity, of sin, and of death. Sin and death are universal realities. The Christian tradition has generally attributed the cause to Adam, but evolution removes that cause as Paul understood it and thus leaves open the questions of where sin and death have come from. More than that, the very nature of what sin is and why people die is turned on its head. Some characteristics that Christians have thought of as sinful, for example, in an evolutionary scheme, the aggression and dominance associated with survival of the fittest and sexual promiscuity to perpetuate one's gene pool are understood as means of ensuring survival. Likewise, death is not the enemy to be defeated. Death is not the unnatural state introduced by a disobedient couple in a primordial garden. Actually, it's the means that promotes the continued evolution of life on this planet and even ensures workable population numbers. Death may hurt, but it is evolution's ally. Evolution is not an add-on to Christianity. It demands synthesis because it forces serious intellectual engagement with some important issues. Such a synthesis requires a willingness to rethink one's own convictions in light of new data. End of quote. Right here is where it all logically ends up. Peter Enns has understood the essence of evolutionary thought. Surely Enns is not advocating an amoral society where we can do whatever we want if it advances our perceived betterment, but that is what he has actually said. Enns did say that we need to rethink our former convictions about sexual promiscuity. Part of the evolutionary process is to ensure the best gene pool. Does this mean that we can practice immorality? This is what he implied. Enns says that we should not view death as some sort of enemy. It's a natural thing in the struggle for life. Death is the means by which workable populations are insured. Well, Peter Enns is in good company with some who have and are practicing various forms of eugenics that is, population control. Sir Julian Huxley, as I pointed out in an earlier lecture, was a great champion of eugenics, and he had no qualms about being sexually promiscuous, even asking his wife to engage in open marriage. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was an avid evolutionist and advocate of eugenics. She stressed the necessity of using birth control, even abortion, to control the numbers of the unfit in various populations. She boldly proclaimed that birth control was the only viable way to improve the human race. How much different is Sanger's view on sexuality than what Inns has stated? Sanger once wrote, quote, The lower down in the scale of human development we go, 
the less sexual control we find. It is said the Aboriginal Australian, the lowest known species of the human family, just a step higher than the chimpanzee in brain development, has so little sexual control that police authority alone prevents him from obtaining sexual satisfaction on the streets. According to one writer, the rapist has just enough brain development to raise him above the animal. But like the animal, when in heat, knows no law except nature, which impels him to procreate whatever the result. End of quote from Margaret Sanger. Sanger was a huge fan of Malthus and population, just like Darwin. Sanger advocated euthanasia, segregation in work camps, sterilization and abortion. As her organization grew, Sanger set up more clinics in the communities of other dysgenic races, such as blacks and Hispanics. Sanger turned her attention to Negroes in 1929 and opened another clinic in Harlem in 1930. Sanger, in alliance with eugenicists and through initiatives such as the Negro Project, exploited black stereotypes in order to reduce the fertility of African Americans. The all-white staff and the sign identifying the clinic as a research bureau raised the suspicions of the black community. They feared that the clinic's actual goal was to experiment on and sterilize black people. Their fears were not unfounded. Sanger once addressed the woman's branch of the Ku Klux Klan in Silver Lake, New Jersey, and received a dozen invitations to speak to similar groups. Flynn claims that she was on good terms with other racist organizations. Margaret Sanger's view of eugenics is most telling when she said, quote, I have no doubt that if natural checks were allowed to operate right through the human as they do in the animal world, a better result would follow. Among the brutes, the weaker are driven to the wall. The diseased fall out in the race of life. The old brutes, when feeble or sickly, are killed. If men insisted that those who were sickly should be allowed to die without help of medicine or science, if those who are weak were but put on one side and crushed, if those who were old and useless were killed, if those who were not capable of providing food for themselves were allowed to starve, if all of this were done, the struggle for existence among men would be as real as it is among brutes and would doubtless result in the production of a higher race of men. End of quote. Quite frightening, isn't it? What Margaret Sanger, the, the founder of Planned Parenthood, said. And we know today, Planned Parenthood is following in line with Margaret Sanger, uh, Sanger. And Planned Parenthood is now advocating infanticide, saying that any baby that was uh, destined to be aborted, if it survives then it ought to be killed by the doctor. It's good evolutionary thinking to think that way. Peter Enns' view in his thesis number nine may seem very radical to many of us, but it has been consistently practiced in the past by other avid evolutionists. Peter Enns 
has a blog site titled Peter Ends Rethinking Biblical Christianity. On April 5, 2012, he titled his blog, You and I Have a Different God, I Think. And here's what he said on his blog site, quote, I've been watching the Adam and Evolution debates online, in social media, and in print. I think I'm beginning to see more clearly what accounts for the deeply held, visceral differences of opinion about whether Adam was the first man or whether Adam is a story. The reason for the differences is not simply that people have different theological systems or different ways of reading the Bible. A more fundamental difference lies at the root of these and other differences. I think we have a different God. And the gospel certainly does not teach me that God is up there at a distance guiding the production of a diverse and rich biblical canon that nevertheless contains a single finely tuned system of theology that he expects his people to be obsessed with getting right and lash out at those who do not agree. Would it be safe to say that Peter Ends is a heretic? I think the answer is obvious. Ends' views are part of the theological monstrosity that results when we open Pandora's evolutionary box.